morning. So the last time I spoke to you guys, if you recall, we considered Psalm 124 and the idea of the Ebenezer from 1 Samuel. The reminder that God is intimately interested in the details of our lives, that he's walked with us this far, and we can trust him to walk with us from here on. As a side note, looking back, I somewhat muddled my translation of the word Ebenezer, which means literally help stone or stone of help um, in explaining that. I got the stone part, but skipped the help. But I'll blame the cold medicine for that one. So, um, But I think we all get the concept, so hopefully I'm still clear of the heresy charge for the moment. <clears throat> and, uh, But I wanted to get that detail right. In any case, uh, we remember the point. Our God is personal. He knows us. He loves us. He has fought on our side and will continue to do so. The Ebenezer reminds us of that, and we do well to look to it often in moments of doubt, remembering all the blessings God has poured out in the past and those he's promised in the future to his people. Now, some of you already have a question ringing in your minds. If you are particularly contrarian, you might have asked it the last time that I spoke to you. And you're right to ask, because our lives do not always come up roses. Sometimes it's more than hard. Sometimes the weight of the world lays so heavily on our chests that just breathing seems all but impossible. So what about when things go badly? Where is our omnipotent God then? I started thinking about this one night when Stacy and I were talking about a friend of ours. He's a contractor. Very talented, thoughtful guy. Works hard. Loves God. Loves his wife and kids. Leads worship at his church. As best we can tell, a genuinely godly and upright person. His business has been doing pretty well the last few years, and so um, in the off-season, our friend invested his nest egg to buy a house that needed remodeling. He usually has a winter off, so it would give him something to do and make up some of the slack in their budget. The plan was just fix it up and sell it at a decent profit. So all through the winter and into the spring, he poured heart and soul into this house. He really does amazing work. Finally, it came time to sell it. They only got one offer but it was good enough. Then at the last minute, the buyer calls it off without explanation. Just game over. That same week, he mailed in a bid on a government contract that would have made up a major part of his family's income for the year. It's something he does every year. Next Monday, he calls in to see about the bid, and he finds out his was the lowest. So by government logic, he should automatically get the job. The only problem is his bid didn't arrive before the deadline. So it just got lost in the mail. So in the course of a few days, largely thanks to forces beyond his control, tens of thousands of dollars just evaporated before his eyes. And just like that, our friend's circumstances went from doing pretty well to what are we going to do? So Stacy told me this story, and like most anyone... Our minds turn to the question, why did God allow that to happen? It doesn't seem to make much sense. It's a good question. They worked hard. They loved and trusted God. Yet circumstances seem to conspire against them. In terms of our discussion here, one might say the peace and hope of the Ebenezer was all well and good when the future seemed uncertain. But now the answer has arrived and it's bad news. Where does our faith leave us when God allows bad things to happen to us? Our house gets broken into. We suddenly get laid off. 
the car breaks down for good. We lose the house and have to cram a family of four into a one-bedroom apartment or worse, a charity shelter. We're forced into bankruptcy. Our broken relationship doesn't heal. Our children go hungry. Our disease turns out to be terminal. Our loved one dies. Bad things do happen. Sometimes they happen to us. Sometimes the seven years of plenty on which you might be basing your Ebenezer are prelude to seven years of famine. Sometimes the situation gets desperate. How do we think about God then? Many thousands, perhaps millions of people have rejected God on this basis. The basis of circumstances like these. I've met people who seemingly can't wait for someone to mention God so that they can jump in with their favorite line. I could never believe in a God who would allow fill in the blank. Usually something tragic that has happened to them personally. I'm sure you've heard it too. They play it like a trump card as though no philosopher or theologian, let alone just an average Christian, could possibly have an adequate reply. But they betray themselves. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis describing his own atheism in in the book Surprised by Joy, they insist that God does not exist while they are simultaneously angry with him. Psychologists have studied this pattern for decades. Julie Exline, a psychologist at Case Western Reserve University, published a set of studies in 2011 about anger toward God. She found that atheists are substantially more likely to be angry at God than those who say they believe that he exists. Further, she draws a direct line between the anger at God and negative personal circumstances. She said, Studies in traumatic events suggest a possible link between suffering, anger toward God, and the doubts about God's existence. And then citing a 1983 study, she went on, 33% of parents who suffered the death of a child reported doubts about God in the first year of bereavement. In another study, 90% of mothers who had given birth to a profoundly retarded child voiced doubts about the existence of God from a 1985 study. Our survey research with undergraduates has focused directly on the association between anger at God and self-reported drops in belief. In the wake of negative life events, anger toward God predicted decreased belief in God's existence. Jesus alluded to this same paradigm in his parable of the sower in Matthew 13:20 and following. You'll recall the story of how the farmer scattered his seed and it fell on soil of varying fertility, some flying into the road, some onto rocky soil, some among thorns, and some in the tilled soil. In verse 20, the seed falling on the rocky ground referred to someone who bears the word and at one, who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word But the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Trouble, persecution, the worries of life, these are powerful forces in our experience. They can't be shrugged off with trite phrases and aphorisms. This is serious stuff. Personal trials and tragedies cut deep into our hearts and minds. Jesus tells us that some with shallow faith may quickly turn their backs on God, while others will have the faith steadily choked out of them. Many of us know people, even with clear and fruit-bearing faith, who have spent long seasons wandering in disillusionment and doubt because of an experience that cut them to the quick and left them spiritually bleeding. And some never have returned from that darkness to the light of relationship with God. 
Some of us have tread those dark paths ourselves from time to time, and some of our wounds have been dealt by people professing their own faith in God. We, here at the church on Melrose, are no strangers to the trials and tragedies of life. And the way we understand and handle these times and difficulties, the way we process them in our hearts and spirits, will have a profound effect on our spiritual lives and thus on the health and wellness of our whole beings. There are deep waters here, touching on many of the most basic assumptions of life and faith and philosophy. But I only have time for one sermon today. With that in mind, I've chosen to focus not on a theoretical apologetic to the unbeliever, with his scoffing one-liners about the existence of evil, though I would love to speak about that another time. Instead, let's narrow the focus back to that original question. I want to talk about us. How should we, believers, the people of God who have first of all submitted ourselves to his will and have been remade by the power of his sacrifice, people like our friend with the house that won't sell and the lost contract, how should we think about, understand, and respond to worry, pain, and challenge and to the sometimes heartrending loss that comes into our lives? To help us with that, I want to begin to answer that most daunting of questions, why? Why did our friend's prospects turn suddenly and inexplicably upside down? Why do pain and suffering, want and loss come into our lives here and now? And here's a little bit of perspective. Why, not in ancient times, but in recent weeks in Iraq, have hundreds and maybe thousands of men, women, and children faced gruesome deaths, stoning, beheading, crucifixion, some buried alive, simply for bearing the name of Christ and refusing to denounce him? How can a good God allow bad things to happen, not to good people, but to his people? Actually, I think there are good answers to these questions. I believe the scriptures offer us understanding, if not moment by moment and case by case, then certainly at the level of principle. God does not leave us to wander in the darkness of ignorance, confusion, and doubt. His word answers the deep questions of our souls. Let's consider then three good reasons for God to let bad things happen to us. Maybe by understanding these things, we can keep from returning to the darkness and even edge a little further into the light. Perhaps we can deny the enemy a foothold when he tries to use negative circumstances to drive our hearts away from the Creator. Reason number one. Perhaps a good God lets bad things happen in order to teach us. To put it bluntly, sometimes we bring pain on ourselves, whether by folly, arrogance, immaturity, or a host of other faults and flaws, we may mishandle our lives, and the results hurt. Sometimes the pain is a direct result of God's punishment, but even then we know it's not because he's vindictive or sadistic. Rather, the scripture tells us that this punishment comes directly from his goodness. In Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, as a father, the son he delights in. Now, the second half of that passage has become the oft-quoted adage that threatens to become one of those trite phrases that ring hollow in our minds. It can sometimes carry a flavor of, this is for your own good, so shut up and take it. But I think the first verse is the important one. It tells us how we should accept the chastening of the Almighty Parent. Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. 
These are internal responses. The teacher offers us perspective to help us see the reason for our pain and to turn our hearts away from rebellion by helping us to understand the heart of God who allows us to experience negative circumstances in order to correct us in love. As it says in Proverbs, flog a mocker and the simple will learn prudence. Rebuke the discerning and they will gain knowledge. God disciplines us in our sin to save us from ourselves. And then again, sometimes the pain we experience is less punishment than logic. God has created an orderly universe where actions have predictable consequences. And one of the mechanisms he set in place to nudge us toward understanding is pain. Indeed, the Proverbs are full of this paradigm, pointing out not only that wickedness, selfishness, and evil lead to ruin, but so do folly, ignorance, and rashness. Chapter 10, verse 14 says, The wise store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. 11.2, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Verse 15 gets more specific. He, put, he who puts up security for another will surely suffer, but whoever refuses to strike hands in pledge is safe. Or consider 13.4, The sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. Or 15.22, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. In 18.7, the mouth of fools are their undoing, and their lips are a snare to their lives. In the house of the wise are stores of good food and oil, but foolish men devour, a foolish man devours all he has. And then 22.3, a prudent man sees danger and takes refuge, but the simple continue and suffer for it. Sometimes our plans go awry because we act out of selfishness, or because we speak too rashly, or because we fail to seek counsel. Proverbs 19.3 summarizes it quite bluntly. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. And there again we see the internal response. His heart rages. If we're going to honestly address this question of suffering in our lives, we have, if we have any hope of learning to govern our inmost thoughts and reactions to the difficulties of life, we have to face the fact that sometimes our own folly ruins us. Sometimes it's not the circumstances which have undone us. Sometimes it is us. It is you and it is me making choices and stumbling forward in our ignorance and impatience and even our rebellion. Paul tells us that we will sow what we sow, we will also reap. We will receive the natural consequences of our choices. And though it would be easy to let our hearts rage against God, it would not be right. God has not failed in his goodness because he allows us to experience the pain and even the great tragedy of our mistakes. Quite the opposite. He reveals his goodness by giving us the chance to learn, whether through his direct rebuke or simply the natural results of our actions. Proverbs 20.30 says, Blows and wounds scrub away evil, and beatings purge the inmost being. The Good News Translation puts it another way. Sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. Anyone who has dealt with children knows this principle to be true. Spare the consequence and the lesson will not stick. Sometimes that kid's going to stick his hand in the candle and not stop until you've turned your back and he splashed the hot wax all over himself. Sometimes we have to fail the course and lose the scholarship before it really sinks in that you really do have to study. 
by allowing us to reap the consequences of our own mistakes and our own sinful actions and attitudes, God gives us the opportunity to learn and grow and avoid greater harm in the future. When faced with pain and hardship, trial and even disaster, we would do well to examine ourselves, not to ask, how could God let this happen to me? But rather, how could I have handled this better? Where is my folly? Is this simply consequence of my brokenness? How in God's goodness is he offering me a chance to learn? That kind of humility is rare and difficult to to acquire, but it may be the most important result of understanding this principle. It takes discipline of mind and heart, but by opening ourselves to the likelihood of our own culpability and the negative experiences of our lives, we make it possible for us to learn and grow and avoid greater and more dangerous mistakes in the future. But perhaps most importantly, such humility is the first great antidote to the anger and bitterness toward God that can drive us into the spiritual darkness and alienation from him. Of course, not every moment of pain and suffering in our lives is the direct result of our own flaws and failings. Both life and scripture tell us that there are greater forces at work in the world than that. But there are other good reasons for God to let us experience pain and loss and frustration. The second reason I submit to you is related to reason one, but expands on the theme. A good God allows bad things to happen to us in order to change us. Much has been said and written on on this aspect of suffering. Think a little and the metaphors come fast and thick. The forging of steel, the refining of metals, the burning off of chaff. James tells us, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And again, Paul tells us, tells the Romans in chapter 5 of his epistle, that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Sometimes God allows pain and trial into our lives because it benefits our character. And this may not mean simply the lessening of our faults. Trials also amplify our strengths. In all this you greatly rejoice in 1 Peter, verse 6. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We may think of faith as a static element. You either have it or you don't have it. But a thoughtful reading of the scripture shows a different paradigm. God speaks of faith more like a skill than a static attribute. And like all other skills, it can only be acquired in the doing. Most of us here have studied, some of us to very high specializations. We are artists, writers, engineers, nurses, mathematicians. We are also mothers and fathers, gardeners, cooks and even some backyard mechanics. We know from experience in every one of these areas and thousands of others that theory only gets you so far. 
The principles of superlative writing can be elucidated in five steps and five minutes. Learning them will not make you a good writer. Only applying them over and over in success and failure will bring you mastery. Likewise, reading about souffle may be helpful, but it won't keep the darn thing from falling. The key is in the execution, and mastery of execution comes only through long practice. So it is with the skills of character. Consider the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Which of these can we acquire without practice? Put simply, trials, pain, even tragedy give us the opportunity to practice our character and thus to become stronger. Paul often uses the metaphor of the athlete or soldier because they fit so perfectly. Both encounter deeply trying circumstances, but in the process acquire skills that can be gotten by no other way. Another way that negative circumstances change us is by drawing us into greater intimacy with God. Because he does not allow trouble into our lives without offering comfort, support, and his own presence. When Israel finally stood on the banks of the river with the promised land in sight, in Deuteronomy 31 at the end of his life, Moses called the people together. God had told him he would not lead the people into the promised land because of his own sin. One of those chastisements we mentioned earlier. So Moses set up Joshua as their new leader. What lay ahead of them was years of war and bloodshed, conflict within their community and without. Having come from four decades in the wilderness, they would now face an even greater challenge. But Moses told Joshua to be strong and courageous. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And then millennia later, Jesus spoke to the disciples, John 14, 18, in preparation of the greatest trial of their lives, his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the decades of persecution, torture, and martyrdom that would follow them. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. God participates with us in our pain and negative circumstances of our lives. Through the Holy Spirit, he shares our experiences. And as any veteran of a road trip or a wilderness hike or even a car wreck, let alone an actual war, can tell us, walking through challenge and pain together can build deep bonds between souls. Likewise, when we walk through pain and tragedy, we have the opportunity to draw closer to our God. But once again, we must, we must manage our understanding. To get the, di- discipline, the benefit of discipline, we must not despise it. To gain the intimacy of walking through trial and tragedy with our God, we must also participate with Him. When we depend on Christ in our pain and draw on His strength in our heartache, we tie our hearts more closely to His. As the relationship grows, so we grow to be more like Him. As Damon told us recently, God's purpose in our lives is not simply to save us out of this world, to whisk us off to heaven. He does not simply offer to hold our hands and pat our heads as we live our lives of quiet desperation. God is orchestrating the events of our lives, allowing pain and even evil to touch us, because this life is building us into something. 
Something, as Damon reminded us, that he intended from eternity past and will realize in eternity future. Consider for a moment why God created you in the first place. He had a grand idea when he first conceived you in the depths of his mind. He made us because he wanted to have us. He made us eternal because he wanted to have us forever. And without getting too deep into the origins of evil, he allowed us the possibility to fall and to break his creation into this world where suffering is not just possible, but universal. Perhaps he allowed that process as he continues to allow negative forces into our lives because of how that process will affect that final product that we will become. After all, humans are the only creatures, so far as we can discern from the scriptures, who experience redemption. That makes us unique as a species, so that the scripture says that angels look at us and wonder. By allowing us to pass through life with its difficulties and pains, its joys and its pleasures, God is simultaneously revealing himself to us and forming us into that ultimate product that he intended from the beginning. And consider that the change that God is enacting in our lives may even go beyond character. Negative experience can push us toward acquiring new skills in the practical realm. They might cause us to change location, shift career paths, or consider pursuing deep passions of our souls that have been overshadowed by the busyness of our daily lives. Tragedy may soften our hearts toward others or simply put us in a position to help someone else or to walk through a similar experience with them. Only when we turn our thoughts and attitudes toward God in the midst of our pain and invite him to change us can we receive the full benefit of these experiences. But once again, this requires us to trust him and seek him in the midst of our pain. If we turn away in anger and allow our emotions to push us to choose fear and doubt instead of practicing faith, then once again we doom ourselves to the dark path. Even in the midst of physical, mental, and psychological suffering, that spiritual pain is not necessary. God is walking with us and using pain to build us into his perfect intention for our being. That is not to say that we will never or should never question, doubt, or feel moments of hopelessness. But by processing these experiences in our spirits with an eye toward the goodness of God in shaping us into higher and better versions of ourselves, we find our way toward understanding and greater faith and fellowship with him. To do that effectively, we must submit our minds and spirits to the hard truth of reason three, that a good God allows bad things to happen to his people. Reason three, because God sees and understands things that we have no access to. In this journey of understanding, we must accept that sometimes we cannot understand. We do not see clearly enough. We cannot conceive of the complexities of existence. After tens of thousands of years of human inquiry, we still fail to grasp even the basic principles upon which the universe and our own beings are built. But God sees the pattern. Billions of lives intersecting with one another moment by moment, affected by mechanics, biology, psychology, zoology, quantum physics not to mention the wills of a constantly churning population of freestanding moral agents whom he mysteriously allows to make their own choices without for an instant losing control of the complete system. 
Meanwhile, we have only recently developed a robot that can stand on two feet and walk with the skill of a one-year-old child. Bipedal locomotion, it turns out, just has too many variables for us to take into account. Or consider the long quest to create believable 3D animation. Real 3D animation. For years, we've heard the optimists proclaiming that actors will be replaced by digital avatars that are indistinguishable from the original. We won't have to have actors anymore pay them to say their lines because we won't be able to tell the difference. We get closer, but time after time, if we're honest, just doesn't look right. Once again, there are simply too many variables. In our own power, with all the tools and abilities he has given us, we can't even create from scratch a believable image of the reality that he has brought into existence, that he sustains moment by moment, that he works to guide and shape and form to his own omniscient ends. And we dare ask where was God when pain or tragedy or loss touches our lives? The answer obviously is he was right there. Jesus said in Matthew that a sparrow does not fall to the ground without the Father's care. It's in chapter 10, verse 29. And he goes on in verse 30, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Christ is not being cute or metaphorical here. He's trying to communicate the deep, penetrating, pervasive involvement of God with every minute aspect of his creation. To successfully interact with the negative elements in our lives, we must ultimately let this truth settle into our inmost parts. I know I've been rattling off scriptures faster than most of us could flip to them, but this time I'll give you a minute. Turn to Job chapter 38. If you knew we weren't going to get out of this one without mentioning Job. The story is familiar. Job was a good guy, like our friend the contractor. He loved God, he loved his family, he did pretty well in the marketplace. Then out of nowhere, he loses everything and gets horribly sick besides. We get a glimpse behind the scenes to see that God has allowed Satan to attack Job. But it's really only a glimpse. We don't have any indication of God's total purpose or reasoning in this process. So anyway, Job is sitting in a pile of ashes with the wind kicked out of him. His wife falls into despair and immortalizes herself with the advice to curse God and die. Just give up. Give in to the doubt and the pain and the anger. Turn away from God. Embrace the power of the dark side. Then Job's friends show up to comfort him and end up sitting there for what seems like a year and a half having a philosophical discussion of the theology of suffering. If this was a six-month theory, six-month series, we could walk through these verses verse by verse. They actually have some fascinating ideas and complexities of thought. They make some excellent points. In fact, they cover some of the same ground that we have covered today. Only they miss this final step. Then God shows up. We read in chapter 38, Then the Lord spake to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? And who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. 
Who shut up, shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when it made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no further, this is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning, shown dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. It, its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light, and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? Can you take me to their places? And he goes on and on. What does Job know about the nature of thunderstorms, stars, lions, mountain goats, the flight of birds, the inner workings of dinosaurs? To paraphrase the immortal words of St. Aaron Sorkin, you want reasons, you can't handle the reasons. Like infants trying to understand the process of engineering an interstate highway system, we do not possess the basic understanding of principles and facts upon which this system is built. No wonder God says in chapter 40, verse 2, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And then in verse 8, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Is this not what we do when we turn from relationship and trust in God's goodness in favor of doubt and anger and hatred for the Creator? Would you condemn God in your heart by insisting that He has no right to allow pain and suffering to touch your life? We cannot begin to know what purpose is served by an unsold house or a lost contract let alone a mortal illness or a tragic accident. Our friend's life may depend on his losing that contract. Suppose an earthquake swallows the building or terrorists drop a dirty bomb on, its, on it during construction. Or let's raise the stakes further. What of the salvation of his children? Suppose not selling that house brings a renter into their lives that profoundly affects the worldview of his own kids, leading one of them to the crucial turn of will that is faith in Jesus' sacrifice. Suppose either one or both of these events led to a seemingly chance encounter in a gas station where he invites an old friend to visit his church or simply bolsters the spirits of a station attendant who is losing hope. The variations and possibilities literally are infinite, but so is God. And he guides the path of history with an understanding so far beyond our own that as the saying goes, we don't even know what we don't know. We have no words or categories for the things he takes into account. This is the deep truth behind the familiar verse in Isaiah 55, that my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In many cases, we fail to grasp even what he has already revealed. Let us consider for a moment... Don't worry, we're coming down the home stretch here. Consider those Iraqi Christians. Some of them may be facing their final moment literally right now, facing the sword or the gun or even the cross that will end their lives. 
How can the evil of their murderers and the gruesome manner of their deaths be allowed by a good God? Our emotions push us toward outrage, not just at the evil men, but also at the good God. Shouldn't we be allowed to judge God just a little when he allows things like that to happen to people simply for refusing to renounce his own name? In asking that question, we have made a very basic error. The same error that philosophers, newscasters, and a surprising number of pastors seem to make every time a war or a mass murderer or a natural disaster claims a surprising number of lives. That is, we have accepted the godless presupposition that death is the worst thing that could happen to us in our existence. In this, we have misapprehended the nature of death and the role of God in it. First of all, we fail to remember the intimacy of God's involvement in every one of those lives. So even if death were the worst thing that could happen to us, God's understanding would so far outweigh our own that we would still have no right to question it. But our good God chooses not to leave us in such difficult darkness. He has revealed himself and the nature of his system to us again and again, by a thousand means. If we think carefully, we will see that Scripture offers a better understanding of death than that. Consider the story in Genesis of the fall of man and the events that followed. God warned Adam and Eve that they must not eat of the tree because it would bring about their death. The serpent twisted those words and they chose to sin. And so they're condemned to die. Let's put this in the, in the context of Damon's series about the cosmic nature of redemption that we've just finished. The fall interrupted the sinless development of Adam and Eve toward the ultimate product that he wanted to keep forever. And we have seen this fallen world with its pain and struggle and its tragedy is but a brief interlude in the vast narrative that will be eternity in the new heaven and new earth. Death makes it possible for that interlude to end. Death is mercy. Not just because it ends suffering, but because it is fundamental to the system that allows us to be saved. Because we die, our brokenness can be ended. Because we have received the blessing of mortality, Christ was able to live and die and rise again, and we are able to do the same through his sacrifice. Without death, Adam and Eve, and we with them, would be doomed to an eternity of brokenness with no hope of redemption. In such a plan, the heretics would be right in their insistence that there is no heaven and hell is just people hurting other people. Through death, a good God has made possible the new heaven and new earth. As Damon showed us, those are real places, promised to be created when this interlude ends and all of creation passes through death and fire to redemption thanks to Jesus' sacrifice. And what might that heaven and earth be like? I think it was uh, J. Vernon McGee who used to say that the best aid to biblical interpretation is a divine imagination. So let's think about what that heaven and earth might be like. As Damon pointed out, God made most of the world rough and in need of taming. And then he set man the task of subduing it. Further, he showed us that the garden was only a beginning to a perfect process that was meant to continue for eternity. For me, this thought is perfectly captured by the teacher in Proverbs 25.2. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. 
suddenly the creation around us makes much more sense. And likewise, the story of Genesis. Consider the nature of humanity. We're builders, explorers, creators. How much of the energy of mankind flows directly to the task of finding things out? Whether it is the nature of subatomic particles or the best way to move a rock out of the middle of a hayfield. Sometimes those efforts are directly connected to keeping us alive in the face of both evil and our own frailty. But how much more do we as human beings search out understanding simply for its own sake? It is one of our most basic traits. We have an active God, and he made us in his image to be active. The psalm sets up the paradigm for that activity. We have every reason to believe that eternity will be a vast playground, a cosmic scavenger hunt orchestrated by an endlessly powerful and creative God so that no matter how much we learn and grow and understand, there will always be another frontier, another puzzle, another experience or project that extends and surpasses all that has come before. Now imagine these explorations taking place in every possible area of human endeavor. Mechanics, physics, biology, visual art, music, storytelling, relationship, theology. Who knows, maybe even food and drink. Imagine the palate you could develop as a corporeal immortal with a millennium to think about flavor. We have every indication that heaven, as most of us think of it, the new heaven and new earth, is not a destination. It is the beginning of an endless adventure and one that is not defined, as Terry Pratchett would have us believe, by bad food, no sleep, and strange people inexplicably trying to stick pointed objects into bits of you. The dead, then, are not in a better place, but rather they, are surpassed, they have surpassed and transcended us. I suspect that looking back from a few, few millennia down the road, we will not consider that those Iraqis' lives were cut short, but that our stay in this unredeemed world was extended. That is not to say that this life bears no importance. Our actions, and more importantly, our choices, in the brief century that each of us may hope to spend here, will certainly have eternal ramifications. Another topic for another sermon. But in the context of this conception of the long line of history that begins with let there be light and continues forward through the vastness of eternity, what is the death of a single believer or a thousand? It is simply, as some have said, a transition. Is this not perhaps what Paul had in mind when he said to the Philippians that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? In verse 22, he said, I am, I am to go on, If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In this sense, we as believers are expendable assets in the vast but temporary divine narrative that is this interlude of fallenness in an eternal plan for perfect union and exploration between us and God. Our eternal destinies are set. God has already prepared, us, prepared for us a reward beyond all imagining. We believers are already reserved for it. By considering this vastness and the complexity of God in both his nature and his plan, we can begin to understand how we should process evil, pain and loss, trial and tragedy, even the prospects of our own mortality. If we will discipline our minds and hearts, first to ask, 
How can I learn from negative circumstances? Then how can I let it change me to be nearer and more deeply connected to God? And finally, how can I trust that all things are within the control of his goodness? Then we will have gone a long way toward walking through these circumstances without falling to the lie of the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Or worse, the folly of Lot's wife, who could see no recourse but to curse God and die. The scripture reveals that God is in fact good. He is powerfully in control, and he is moving both us and his creation toward an end too wonderful for our wildest imaginations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message and the reminder that you are so far above us and yet you are so interested in us, in all the details of our lives, even the workings of the physical world. Thank you that your plan is so great and help us in our hearts to accept the difficulties of this period that we have on earth, to think about you in terms of your goodness, not in terms of our emotions and our anger. Let those thoughts and understandings draw us toward you rather than away. And walk with us through the rest of this week. Amen.